Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. Consciousness remains a scientific puzzle. What it is, what creates it, and though all known conscious systems are alive, not all living systems are conscious. These days, cortically-based theories of consciousness are all the rage. However, renowned neuropsychologist and psychoanalyst Mark Soames has put forth in his book, The Hidden Spring, a radically convincing theory for the subcortical homeostatic origins of consciousness rooted primarily in feeling, or what is known as affect. Dr. Soames explains why a particular area of the brainstem is his choice for where the lights of consciousness get switched on and off, and deftly explains the difference between mind and consciousness, and why humans have evolved a mind to mediate between the needs of the visceral body, the self, and the objects in the world that satisfy those needs. Dr. Soames' research on consciousness has recently pivoted toward bridging affect into artificially intelligent systems. And yes, we do talk about the ethics of that frightening possibility. This episode is fascinating and mind-blowing, and I am so grateful to have had time with such a compassionate and brilliant researcher clinician. Well, Dr. Mark Soames, I don't think honor even comes close, and I'm so excited we have this time together. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I usually start by asking people to talk a little bit about what they've done, who they are. In your case, you've done so much, and you've bridged so many different fields. It's a polite way of putting it to say that you've done so many different things. Really, uh, many of my colleagues, I think, would uh, say that I do two mutually contradictory things. I started out in uh, neuropsychology. I say neuropsychology because uh, it's that branch of neuroscience that deals with the mental aspect of brain functioning. I was uh, very disappointed by how little real psychology there was in neuropsychology. In fact, my late colleague, Oliver Sacks, once said that neuropsychology is admirable, but it excludes the psyche, you know, which I think is quite an indictment. And I found myself in agreement with those words, which were written in 1984. I was training in the early 80s in that field. And so as a result of that frustration with the absence of what I thought psychology was about, which is about what it's like to be a brain, out of that frustration, I trained in psychoanalysis, of all things. My colleagues at the time said, it's like an astronomer deciding to study astrology. And uh, <laughs> I then have spent the whole of my working life since then trying to build a two-way bridge between those two fields. Although my original intention was to bring something of the lived life of the mind into neuroscience using psychoanalytic concepts and theories and methods. It is also proven to be a very interesting thing to do in the other direction to see how can we contribute to development of psychoanalysis, both as a theory and as a therapy, by importing 
to it um, concepts and uh, theories, knowledge and methods from the neurosciences, which are more suitable for testing psychoanalytical theoretical claims than the psychoanalytic method itself is in some way. So that's what I am. I'm a neuropsychologist and a psychoanalyst. New word that was invented precisely in 1999, which is neuropsychoanalyst. Even in those realms, I want to say there's something very unusual about you. In the study of neuroscience, the body has not figured very much. Very cortical view, very functional brain only. In your book, The Hidden Spring, you started out by naming two people I don't think many people in neuroscience or psychology have even heard of, Yak Pengsef and Carl Friston. And that sets you apart, I think, from most people in either of these fields. Both of those scientists are very well known within their own specialisms, but not very well known perhaps beyond them. And their two specialisms or specialities uh, have very little to do or have had very little to do with each other. And so I think that that's also what strikes you or what you're alluding to. So Jak Panksepp was a great pioneer. I say was because sadly he died a few years ago, but he was a great pioneer of what came to be known as affective neuroscience. And the word affective neuroscience is meant to stand as a sort of corrective to cognitive neuroscience. Jacques' great uh, shtick, as they say, uh, <laughs> was uh, along the lines of what you were just sort of saying. The mind isn't just a problem-solving machine or a, or, a, or a computer or an information processing device. It's part and parcel of the whole embodied creature. The brain is there to meet our needs, uh, to help us to learn how to meet our needs in the world. And our needs are fundamentally determined by our species and by the fact that we are animals. So that was the corrective that he tried to expand the horizons of cognitive neuroscience to take account of affect and via affect, the thing that you were saying, to take account of the fact that the, the brain is not in a vat, the brain is embodied, and you can't understand it outside of that context. Carl Friston, by sharp contrast, is a computational neuroscientist. His main interest is trying to reduce to fundamental, quantifiable, lawful equations. The mind is part of nature. It must, therefore, be governed by some fundamental principles. And he's trying to identify those within a very particular computational framework which started out as being known as the predictive processing framework, the Bayesian brain, you might have heard that phrase. Then it was deepened by him to a framework that, that is called active inference and ultimately the free energy principle. And the free energy principle really is reducing our understanding of the mind to very basic processes of the kind that we deal with in statistical physics. The gap between Panksepp and, and Friston is a vast one. In recent years, I like to believe partly under my influence, uh, Friston has become very interested in affective processes and in the embodied nature of the brain. So much so that I think now the whole free energy principle is probably seen by him and many people 
as a very close bedfellow of the principle of homeostasis, of how living things continue to stay alive. The starting point of Friston and, and Panksepp gap is large, but I think that the end point where we are now, the gap is, is not at all as large as it might once have appeared. Friston is not alone in that, you know, that there are also other people working within that framework. Perhaps the leading figure along these lines is Anil Seth. He has also been doing very important work within that framework about the embodied brain, the importance of affect. I'm sorry if I sound over-enthusiastic, but I'll tell you, I think that we're entering, if not already in a golden age, uh, you know, in mental science, because it is possible now, my God, it was not possible when I started, but it is possible now to be having collaborations like that. But on the one hand, you're working with a computational neuroscientist, and on the other hand, you know, with a, an affective animal neuroscientist, this is okay. And there are philosophers who are in the mix, and not just on the periphery. Think, for example, of David Chalmers and his influence yeah. over the science of consciousness, the neuroscience of consciousness. So it's really a very interesting time. We're lucky to be alive now. I am gratified that there's no more arguing. I remember even in 2004 at Toward the Science of Consciousness Conference, which was the first year I went, it literally was four days of just arguing. Neuroscientists were saying to the philosophers, why are you even here? You're useless. The philosophers were saying to the neuroscientists, you have no idea what you're talking about. Brains are not computers. And I would also say, you are a clinician. You work with actual patients. Many of these people don't do that. The one thing that I experienced throughout the narrative in your book was this tremendous amount of compassion and humanism for the suffering of humans, particularly humans when they have things that happen in their brains. In the beginning of your book, you mentioned very early in your life, you had direct experience as a young child of what can change when something physical changes in a brain. You know, when you draw attention to the fact that I am both a clinician and a scientist, and in fact, the thing we were talking about previously, that I'm on the one hand a neuroscientist and on the other hand a psychoanalyst, Th those facts about me, I think, have everything to do with the event that you just mentioned. When I was four, going on five, my older brother, who was two years older than me, fell off the roof of a building and fell some distance uh, and landed on a co concrete pavement below, fractured his skull, had an intracerebral hemorrhage. It was a life-threatening emergency. We were in quite a remote corner and he was flown, therefore, to a tertiary care hospital. I mean, it is just astonishing. Ironically, it's the hospital I now work at. And the very building that my office is in was the <laughs> Department of Neurosurgery, where my brother was treated. And it really is entirely accidental. My office only recently moved into that building, and it was nothing to do with me. But there I am now in the very place where he was treated. You know, thankfully, he survived, but he was really very dramatically changed uh, as a person. Uh, he looked the same, but he wasn't the same. You can imagine the mind of a youngster. Where's my brother and who's this guy and how the hell did that happen? It wasn't only an intellectually perplexing problem. It was also an emotionally distressing situation, not only for 
me and my brother, but of course for my whole family. I think that I was brought face to face a little earlier and or perhaps a little bit more kind of starkly than most of us are, brought into having to contemplate the meaning of the relationship between us sentient beings and our brains and our bodies. And that mystery as to how come damage to that bodily organ makes my brother no longer my brother. Now he's just so, so completely different as a person and cognitively, you know, intellectually and so on. I was confronted with this problem and tried to sort of puzzle my way through it. It wasn't only a problem that applied to my brother. It was a problem that I realized applied by extension to all of us and therefore to me. How can I be my brain? What's going to become of me when my brain dies? I think a hell of a lot of children ponder these things. I just think I was confronted with it in a sort of slightly more dramatic circumstances. But then it led to, because my brother was less intellectually capable than I was, when I did well at school, as one wants to do, you know, normally you come home and say, yeah, mommy, daddy, you know, I got full marks. In my family, that was a very complicated thing. For me to do well was painful for my brother. At the very least, it caused mixed feelings in my parents. I think that the reason I chose to study the field that I did and work in you know, neuropsychology in particular was because in this way I could resolve the conflict between, on the one hand, my ambition and on the other hand, my, my guilt. So if I did well in that field, then I would satisfy my own self-interest, but I would also be helping people like my brother. That, that I think, was the compromise that was not deliberately forged, but I think that that is why I chose to do it. And that leads on to why I had to be a clinician. I wasn't just trying to solve abstract problems. I was also trying to help people who suffer the realities of brain disease and brain damage. I really needed to do both. I needed to understand these questions. And I needed to always remember how fortunate I am by comparison with people like my brother and the patients who I work with. Even within neuropsychology, those who are clinicians, you know, generally we have quite limited contact. You see the patient at the bedside in the ward, or they come on an outpatient basis and you do an assessment and, you know, it takes a couple of hours and then that's it. You know, you don't get to live with your patients like I did with my brother. It's Really, the whole life of the person is bound up with their brain and the state of their brain and the health of their brain and the capacity of their brain. I couldn't take this kind of narrow view of cognition or, or narrow view of what neuropsychology is about. It really was an impossibility for me, given the things that had motivated me in the first place. That's also why eventually I took the alarming to my colleagues step of training in psychoanalysis, because I felt it was necessary. If all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. I needed more tools because I knew that, you know, we're not dealing with cognition alone here. We're dealing with something much more complicated and much more interesting and much more important. So even though it was a bad career move, as I was vociferously advised by my professors, I wasn't trying to build a career. You know, I was really trying to understand some things of profound interest to me. And I was also trying to be of some use. This is a really beautiful example of how trauma 
can lead to something so powerfully and radically different in a field. What I'm hearing you say is that it was the personal experience you had with the shift, not just in personality, but also in functioning that led you to come to the conclusion, well, I could just go down the road of following the functional reasoning for how come my brother changed. But so much more happened in your family system, in your own psyche that made you, I think, say, well, of course I have to learn how to delve into functioning of mind on the abstract level, which is what we do. Psychology is abstract as far as I could tell. Neuroscience has something more functional. It has something more physical. So you could look at it and say it's not abstract. But for me, even neuroscience has an abstraction about it because we, we can't see the mind directly, really. It's the one thing we can't in medicine. We just really can't see the mind. So with that, maybe we should define some terms. The first two terms, consciousness and mind. I know for some people they're interchangeable. I don't know how you feel about that, whether you would define them differently. Well, uh, no psychoanalyst would ever accept the equating of consciousness with mind. <laughs> I mean, this was one of the greatest contributions that Freud made to psychology was to recognize that the mind is way bigger. It covers many things which are not part of our consciousness. The notion of unconscious mental functions is now not controversial at all. It's not questioned. The mainstream view is not only that some mental functions are unconscious, but that most mental functioning is unconscious. So you said, let's define some terms. So, well, there we have two terms. The term consciousness, it's a term with many different levels to it. In essence, the definition that Tom Nagel, a philosopher, came up with in the 70s already, he said, if there is something it is like to be an organism, something it is like for the organism, then the organism is conscious. That phrase, you know, that there's something it is like, was then picked up by David Chalmers, who famously coined uh, the hard problem. The hard problem has to do with how do we accommodate this something it is likeness, this qualitative, subjective, experiential state with everything else that we know about how the, the physical universe works. So that's my definition. I'm very happy to use for consciousness what it is like to be an organism for the organism. That's what consciousness is. As to mind, a lot of what is mental is not conscious. So then we have to say, well, you know, what defines the mental if it is not consciousness? And that's a difficult question. My answer to it is that the mind is first and foremost something subjective, uh, and not all subjectivity is conscious. In other words, it's a point of view, it's a perspective, it's an observational stance. Uh, it's the being of something. Okay, so the mind is the being of something, it's something subjective. Secondly, it is capable of consciousness. In other words, it includes conscious states. What I mean there is that this thing I'm looking at now is being a computer. That is the subjective perspective uh, upon the computer is the being of the computer. But if there's nothing it is like to be a computer, in other words, if it's not capable also of conscious states, 
then I wouldn't say that it's got a mind. It may process information, it may remember things, it may visually recognize things, all of those things, you know, uh, computers can do. But if there's not something it is like for the computer to do those things, then the computer is not capable of consciousness. And so I would say that's a second fundamental attribute. So subjectivity is not enough. You have to say subjective and there's something it's like to be that thing. So its subjectivity includes sentience. Um, then I would say also, because you have to define what makes the unconscious parts mental too, why don't you only reserve the word for that part which is conscious? I would say that even the unconscious parts of a mind, defined as I have so far, as being something subjective and something which is capable of consciousness, the unconscious parts of it share with the conscious parts of it intentionality. The mind is always trying to bring from a subjective perspective, and it can be felt, doesn't have to always be felt. There's always a, an aboutness, something that all of this functioning is for, from the viewpoint of the system. So that's what I mean by intentionality. It relates to the philosophical concept of intentionality, but I'm not using it in the philosophical sense. Lastly, minds have agency. That intentional trying to achieve something, the more that you are in possession of that intentionality, rather than it just being some reflex or some instinct that acts through you, to the extent that you have ownership of that intentionality, to that extent you have agency. And I think that that fourth dimension admits of degrees. So you can have a simple mind or you can have a complex mind. The amount of mentation that is there correlates a lot with that concept of agency. Minds are things which are subjective, capable of consciousness, are intentional, and possess agency. Consciousness is the second one of those things. It is what it is like to be a mind. Okay, so, so far, listeners may be thinking, well, this doesn't sound so different, so how come The Hidden Spring is such a different book? You drew attention earlier in this conversation to the being of the mind was always what mattered. I mean, that's what it was, the being of my brother. It's the being of myself. That question was what mattered to me and how that relates to the physical tissues and uh, the, the anatomy and physiology of the brain. So um, that is the hard problem. That is exactly the hard problem. How do these two things relate to each other? So that's what my whole working life has been about. What The Hidden Spring is, is an attempt to sort of deposit in one book what I've learned in the process, <laughs> what kinds of conclusions I've come to. And the crucial uh, distinguishing feature, you were saying earlier, I must define consciousness. And I said that it has many different dimensions. But I said, I am happy to go with that very simple definition. There's something it is like to be a mind. So I've been trying to reduce you know, to its simplest form, rather than looking at consciousness in all of its human complexity, trying to reduce to what is the most basic elemental form of consciousness. Um, and uh, I, I've, I've been driven to the conclusion that it's feelings, feelings in the affective sense of the word. And when I say I've been driven to the conclusion, I don't mean by pure reason. I mean by research. The smallest part of the brain, which when damaged leads to a total obliteration of consciousness, is a region in the upper brain stem known as the reticular activating system. And this system, which switches on the lights for the whole of the brain, is also where the most basic raw feelings are generated. 
because this is the most sort of concentrated consciousness producing tissue that there is, if I can put it so loosely, you only need to damage an area of the reticular activating system, the parabrachial complex to be precise, an area of that part of the brainstem, the size of a match head. That's the size of the damage that's required to obliterate all consciousness in us human beings. And remarkably, damage to that structure, the, or the equivalent structure in all mammals, all vertebrates, has the same outcome. That tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of brain tissue is absolutely prerequisite for all consciousness in all of its complexity. The fact that that part of the brain also generates raw feeling is what sets me apart from most of my colleagues. I thought, well, if we're wanting to understand what does it mean to be an organism for the organism, that what is it likeness is feeling is basic affects. And that's what the anatomy and physiology suggest. So that diverted me from focus upon the cortex uh, and all of these higher cognitive functions, which have been a shared assumption that this is the organ of consciousness. Once you realize that that assumption is wrong, you're going to be doing something very different. I hasten to add, I'm not the only one. You know, in fact, it was in the 1940s already that we discovered that the reticular activating system is where the lights are switched on. But it was only in the 1990s that we began to realize that, those, that it's not literally a light switch, it's not just a power supply, that it has quality and content. This basic arousal function of the reticular activating system, it is raw feeling. That pioneering work was done by the very person we mentioned earlier, Jörg Panksepp, was the pioneer of recognizing that these arousal processes are not just volume control knobs. They don't just have a quantitative dimension, but they have a quality and a content, and that is what we call affect. And Antonio Damasio, uh, to his very great credit, because he didn't start up with that view, he changed his mind radically and accepted that Panksepp's view was correct. And there's another scientist, a neuroscientist, who I'd like to mention here. His name is Bjorn Merker, M-E-R-K-E-R. Those three colleagues um, preceded me in emphasizing the importance of the brainstem for affect and therefore the importance of affect for our understanding of consciousness as a whole. When I say it's foundational, I also mean in the evolutionary sense. I think that the dawn of consciousness was just the creature becoming aware of its need states, becoming aware of them, feeling that things are going well or badly in relation to core bodily needs like temperature regulation, the need to respire oxygen, the need to have energy resources replenished, the feeling of these things going well or badly, I think, was the dawn of consciousness. While I'm busy nattering so much, I might as well just mm. carry on and say that once you reduce consciousness to this very basic form, then it starts to become possible to do ordinary science on it uh, in a way that, uh, that ends up taking one to uh, people like Carl Friston, where you start saying, okay, well, now we're dealing with a relatively simple mechanism that's very closely tied to the basic life-sustaining mechanism known as homeostasis, which is not very complicated. And to be able to reduce that to fundamental laws is not that hard. And so that's how I got from this fluffy stuff called the lived life <laughs> of the mind 
uh, via affect and, the, and these core brainstem nuclei to very fundamental physicalist, mechanistic sort of ways of thinking about it. Some people may be a little confused when we use the word affect, particularly in this sense, because we're not necessarily talking about higher level feelings. We're actually talking about biological need processes that arise and are experienced by an organism as pleasurable, displeasurable, or neutral. We have these three basic valences. Turns out they really direct a lot of what an organism will do. I was so fascinated by how you took Yak Pankseph's hierarchy of several systems. When we start to talk about Yak Pankseph's model and his systems, I think the clinicians may realize they were never taught this in any psychology program. And this is all gonna sound very new for them, but I have a sense that they may recognize in their patients a lot of what they do, a lot of the issues they have that plague them are driven by certain kinds of problems, making distinctions and prioritizing in these particular systems. I think it's the fifth chapter of the book, the chapter on feelings really lays all of this out. Would, would you be willing to have us kind of go through this? Sure, I would. Um, and everything you've just said is, is correct. You know, that's that people might be a little unsure about what we're talking about when we say affect and all the way from that basic question through to what is the relevance of all of this for the clinical work of a psychotherapist. When you said earlier, I'm a clinician, I am a clinician in both senses of the word. I don't only work with neurological and neurosurgical patients, but also with common and garden psychotherapy patients. So I know from my own professional experience that these very basic foundational concepts have to do with affect and how it works, uh, which I'll now unpack for you, uh, that they all have plenty of relevance and, and, and great value for helping us to orientate ourselves as to what it is we're dealing with in psychotherapeutic work. And affect we living things have needs, which means that we have certain viable states that we have to remain in, like your core body temperature. You know, you can't just explore all possible temperatures, you'll die. Uh, you have to stay within a certain range. And the same with oxygen and carbon dioxide, and the same with hydration and in relation to, to salt content, uh, you know, same in, in terms of your energy supplies. There are viable ranges you have to remain within. If you deviate from those, that's a demand on your body to do something about it. Otherwise, it's going to die. The brain being the kind of command and control center of the body is registering how things are going in terms of all of these basic needs. And deviations from where you need to be are bad. And so how the brain registers this, which is the great leap into psychology, is that it feels bad. Unpleasant feelings mean that you are moving away from where you need to be, and pleasant feelings mean the opposite. And this guides our behavior. I mean, it really is as fundamental as that. It makes possible choice. I like this, I'll do that. I don't like this, I won't do that. If there wasn't a value system of what is better and what is worse, then how do you make choices? Voluntary behavior, as opposed to reflexes, voluntary behavior is guided by choice, that's what voluntary means, as opposed to automatic, means chosen. 
And choices are rooted in value system, which, which we are aware of by virtue of feeling, by valence. Valence just means goodness, badness, which means pleasure and unpleasure. Neutral means you're within your viable bounds. You're, we call it satiation. You know, you are where you need. You're sort of like in the zone. So <laughs> that's how it works in terms of bodily processes. The, the defining feature of affects is three things. Number one, they're subjective. In other words, it's about my own state. Number two, they are valenced. In other words, they have a goodness and a badness. An intrinsic goodness and badness is not something you apply to, like outside there, I like the color red. It's not intrinsic to the color red that it's got goodness or badness. But your own affective processes are intrinsically good or bad for you. So they're subjective, they're valenced. And then thirdly, they have a quality, categorical quality. And what I'm referring to there is the fact that hunger feels different from thirst, feels different from suffocation, feels different from sleepiness. Categorical variables are qualitatively distinct from each other. Why affects are, are categorical variables is because you need to know which need are we talking about. So I'm feeling bad about what? I'm feeling bad about lack of Water, you know, that's called thirst, or I'm feeling bad about lack of sleep, that's called sleepiness, and so on. And we have to meet all of these needs. You can't just add them all up together. There's no common denominator called total need, that you just need to reduce that number. You can't say, well, I'm three out of 10 hungry, and I'm seven out of 10 sleepy. That means I'm 10 out of 20 total needs, so I'll just sleep all the time. You'll die if you do that. You have to eat and sleep. They're categories, they're qualitatively distinct. So those three things characterize affects, all affects. Um, they are subjective, they are valenced, and they have a quality. Now that same principle applies to the next level up, which is emotions. Emotions are not bodily affects. Emotions are feelings which have to do with situations we find ourselves in. As psychoanalysts call them object relations, situations like Fear, it's a scary situation, or rage, it's a frustrating situation, or panic, it's a separation distress sort of situation. And these emotions, they also function homeostatically. We're just not used to thinking about it this way. That's where their valence comes from. There's a, a set point. So in relation to fear, for example, your viable bounds are, I am not in danger to life and limb. Uh, if you are in danger to life and limb, you've deviated from your viable bounds and you feel fear. Your viable bounds in relation to, say, rage is that there's nothing standing between me and the things that I need, nothing getting in my way and preventing me. If something is getting in your way, an, an impeding obstacle, then you start to feel frustrated and eventually you feel pissed off. It's a homeostatic deviation. It's a deviation from where you need to be. Separation distress is I need to be with my caregiver. Ah! These emotions, they're all of them homeostatic. And once you realize that, you see that, you know, they're, they're far from being fluffy things, emotions. Emotions are really biologically essential things. If you can't fight for your fair share in the world, you know, you've got to stake your claim. And if you don't escape dangers, you're a goner. What fear gets applied to is a complicated thing. But I mean, what it actually is there for in the first place, fear, rage, lust, separation, distress, nurture and care, you know, the looking after little vulnerable dependent ones. And all of these things, these emotions, they are of fundamental biological importance. Now, I've just listed there five of them. And this is the result of very hard systematic work by Panksip and his colleagues and students 
to try to map out in the mammal brain, the primate brain, the human brain, turns out to be we've got the same basic emotional circuitry. All mammals have the same basic emotional circuitry, and this is just astonishing. But those five are not the only ones. There are two which are less well-known. One of them is a great surprise to people. It's play. All mammals need to play. It's a basic emotional need. Everyone knows what play is. They don't realize it's a need. If you deprive a juvenile mammal of play for half an hour today, it'll try to make it up. The half an hour is more play tomorrow. We, we literally need to play. And the seventh one, we very few people know about it, is called seeking, yeah. which is just a basic sort of exploratory curiosity, interest in the world. Um, and this is not a philosophical concept. Again, it was discovered, you know, there's brain circuitry and brain chemistry that generates this foraging behavior, this positive, optimistic, curious, interested engagement with the world. These are all of them homeostatically regulated, all of them biologically fundamental, and they are the basic kinds of emotion. Then there are interactions between these emotions, you know, which give rise to secondary kinds, like, for example, you attached to your caregiver, you want her presence forever and always, and you are frustrated by impeding objects, things that prevent you from getting what you want, and you want to attack them. But what if the person who's frustrating you is your caregiver? So there you have a conflict. And so that gives rise to guilt. Guilt is the inhibiting of the rage in order to preserve the attachment by directing it inwards. I'm bad if I feel rage toward my caregiving object. And there are many conflicts. There's conflict between rage and fear. And I want to attack this guy, but oops, he's bigger than me. So then we have all of the complexities of emotional life arise out of interactions between these different affects and the cognitive processes that we use to resolve them, by which I mean the cognitive processes that we use to meet our needs. And there we come back to this basic thing about cognition. We don't just have cognition because it's nice to have cognition. Cognition is in the service. We have to learn how to meet our needs. That learning process, which makes use of perception and action, you start, I hope, to see now where how it's, all of this starts to become clinically relevant. The basic task of mental development is learning how to meet your emotional needs. The bodily needs are not that hard to learn how to meet. It's, it's not that hard to learn how to eat and how to breathe. But how to get the people who you love to stay with you, it's hard. I hope I'm not the only one who's discovered that. And not to mention the way that these needs conflict with each other. And so the great task of life is to learn how to meet these needs. And to the extent that we do not succeed in that task, to that extent, we suffer feelings. That's what psychopathology is. My children said to me when they were little, well, they said to their friends that my daddy is a doctor for feelings. That's a wonderful definition of what a psychoanalyst or, or a psychotherapist is. We treat feelings. Our patients suffer mainly from feelings. All of this knowledge that I'm referring to arising from affective neuroscience, being able to understand what the basic natural kinds of feeling are and what they mean, because feelings mean something, it means there's a need that's not being met. This is what I mean when I say that this kind of knowledge can be used as a kind of an orientation, a sort of finding our way in the thickets of the mind. The mind is a very complicated place, but to have a basic compass and for me, the points on the compass, the sort of north, south, east, west, etc., of the compass, the equivalents in the life of the mind are basic emotions. 
when I'm dealing with a psychotherapy patient, I start with, well, what feeling are they suffering from? That's how I take my bearings and then tells me where things are going wrong. And then the question becomes, well, what is the patient doing? How are they going about trying to meet this need because it's clearly not working? That then becomes the sort of analytical task of trying to infer what explains this feeling. And there's a great deal more I could say about how we come to recognize what that thing is. But I'll just give a, a very quick indication. Memories, by the way, are predictions. We don't normally think about it like that. Memories mm -hmm. are about the past, but they're for the future. The whole point of learning from the past is do better in future, to know what works and what doesn't work. Predictions, that's how I think of memory, the products of learning. What you're trying to do is to, is to identify what the patient's predictions are. And generally, these predictions are deeply consolidated into non-declarative memory that we don't even realize that you know, we're acting on the assumption, on the implicit assumption that this will meet my needs. And so that's a sort of one of the very basic things we do in psychotherapy is to try to identify what are the implicit predictions that are governing a person's behavior. You know, those are the things that ultimately have to change if they're going to no longer suffer in the way that they are. But gosh, I've really said an enormous amount. I want to ask a qualifying question. A lot of the functioning of the human organism is actually under the hood. It's autonomic. And so all of these quote unquote need structures, they're doing a lot of responding to need without the need for conscious awareness of these yeah. needs getting met. So would you say that there's a threshold of need in the hierarchy at which the body basically says, I need you conscious 10%, and now you have to get into the role of helping me do prediction, helping me do assessment, helping me figure out more complex problems about getting these basic bodily needs met. There are two things you've said there. One is that most of our needs are dealt with autonomically. That's correct. And the second thing is that there's a threshold beyond which we cannot deal with our needs autonomically. But that threshold is not a quantitative one. It's not how much need there is. It's more how much uncertainty there is as to how to meet it. So let's start with the autonomic ones, you know, that there are needs which are met by reflexes. In other words, there's no uncertainty. It's an entirely predictable situation. A very well-known example because it's clinically notorious, is blood pressure regulation. You know nothing about your blood pressure unless you externally measure it. And that's because there are only two things you can do about blood pressure. The one is you can dilate or constrict your arteries, and the other is you can increase or decrease your heart rate. So there's no uncertainty. It's like, okay, uh, blood pressure dropping, so change heart rate, uh, change vasodilation. Blood pressure rising, change them in the other direction. That's it. Those are absolutely automatic, autonomic processes where the prediction is always the same as to what needs to be done. The same with breathing. You don't need to be aware, oh, I better breathe in, oh, better breathe out, and it just happens. So it's an autonomic function. It's regulating a very basic need, which is to balance your blood gases. And here's the transition. Now you enter an unpredictable situation. You're in a carbon dioxide filled room. You suddenly become aware of that. That's that transition. You become aware of your need to breathe at that point. So this autonomic respiratory control suddenly gives way to something that we call suffocation alarm. 
respiratory distress, air hunger. It's a dreadful feeling. And why does that happen? It's because you don't have a pre-prepared prediction as to what to do, because you've never been in a burning building before, let alone this particular burning building. So how do you know what to do? You feel your way through the problem. If you make the right choice, you feel better. In other words, if you go where the oxygen is, which happens to be downstairs rather than upstairs, you know, you didn't know that. And it's all felt. That governs your behavior in an uncertain situation. So that is an enormous adaptive advantage. If you're a creature, and there are many, many creatures that have only got reflexes, they only function autonomically. If you're such a creature, you find yourself in an unpredictable situation, you die. Because you do your automatic thing, it doesn't work, you're gone. Right. So if you have the capacity to feel this is not working, but this is, that is the function of feeling. And so it guides our behavior in uncertain situations, not only by trial and error in the here and now, which is an enormously valuable thing, voluntary behavior, but also by learning through experience. So you learn from that experience what to do in future. Ironically, the behaviorists call that the law of effect. And, you know, behaviorists never believed in feelings. Banks have mischievously <laughs> renamed it the law of affect. What feels good, we want to do more of. And what feels bad, we tend to avoid. It's fundamental, the contribution of feeling to voluntary action and to learning from experience is what could be more basic to the life of the mind that, than that. When you move out of the bounds of predictability and you now need to make choices, in other words, you're in a state of uncertainty, to reduce your uncertainty, you learn from the experience what feels good and ultimately satiates you and what feels bad, uh, which ultimately could kill you. In our current psychotherapy milieu, I don't know if it's like this where you are, but certainly in America, if you go through a psychology program now, you're not learning about emotion. You're essentially only being trained in cognitive behavioral therapy because certainly this is true for the vast majority of people I work with. They have been viewing everything you've been saying about feeling as thought. People think this is thinking. How many times have I had a person at the very beginning of treatment tell me, they're not comfortable with their emotions. They don't like feeling anything. They're scared of them because they don't realize much of what they think is thought is actually feeling. It's emotion. They're having it. They just don't have this frame. Feelings drive the engine of the mind. It's as simple as that. Feelings make demands upon the mind to perform work. And the work that we perform is cognition. It's demanded by the feelings. Cognition is there for a reason so that we can learn how to meet our needs in the world. In other words, how to regulate our feelings. That's the same thing. But you're absolutely correct about people mistaking feelings for cognitions and thinking that they're just a variety of thought. And this is why it's so important. What we were talking about earlier on in our conversation, feelings are generated in the brain stem. Feelings are generated in part of the brain where there's no thought going on whatsoever in a part of the brain that we share with fishes. I mean, it's an extremely primitive thing. Nothing to do with cognition. Feelings are raw, basic things. Any vertebrate can feel pain without having the foggiest clue, you know, what pain is for and what pain is about and how pain works. It's just a feeling, and you just respond to it. 
And the same applies to many other basic raw feelings. The view that you've just mentioned, that feelings are just basically a kind of thought, is frighteningly widespread in mental science. And not only among sort of non-specialists who have no reason to know any better, but even among many serious scientists. Joe Ledoux, who I must tell you is a friend of mine, Joe Ledoux seriously claims that feelings are a form of thought and that they come into being in the prefrontal cortex. Everything else is unconscious until it's read out in the prefrontal cortex and given a name. Oh, so it's fear that I'm feeling. Now uh, fear comes about. Just to give you a brief introduction to why that's nonsense. First of all, you take patients with damage to their frontal cortex. They don't feel less, they feel more. Um, I report in my book, one of my patients who had absolutely no prefrontal cortex. And my gosh, his life was dominated by feelings, as they always are. It's a core feature of the frontal lobe syndrome. So how come you take away the machinery that's meant to be generating these, this type of thought called feelings? Uh, you take away that machinery and the feelings increase rather than decrease. I also report in my book, children who are born with no cortex, none at all. And they are full of feeling. And they're full of all the basic emotions I mentioned earlier. They demonstrate them. And they demonstrate them in situationally appropriate ways. It's sort of a painful thing to have to say. But they are absolutely incapable of any cognition at all. Because they do not have any cortex. They do not have any forebrain in many cases. And yet they have feelings. So how can these be a form of thought? Uh, many other bits of evidence like deep brain stimulation. You know, you stimulate the cortex. You don't get intense feelings. You stimulate those deep brainstem structures. You know, you get overwhelming feelings yes. reported by the, the patients. You've just moved us into a great territory. I don't know if you meant to do it, but you took us right from brain science directly into psychological theory about why we have thought, why we have an ego at all. I think you've done quite a bit, at least for me on a personal level, to help me more deeply understand why we have a self, why we even need to have one. Because with all this feeling that is continually generated from the physical, environmental relationship with the body and its surround, our, our entire embodied existence, for me, runs on affect, meaning feeling into what my environment is and how I'm responding to the environment. You described the usefulness of having an ego to sift through all of this, maybe as a defense, maybe thinking is a way of defending against being so fully driven by drives all the time. We're able to come up with a way of being in the world that can actually work not just for us, but also because we're tribal creatures. So we have to move in the world in a way that includes others. And you mentioned object relations. So I don't know how we would ever be able to do any of that higher order living as a human without having the prefrontal cortex. To me, this is the reason we have one. Well, I think we're agreeing with each other. So I agree with you agreeing with me that the sentient subject is literally brought about, literally constituted by feelings. And feelings have to do with the state of the subject. How am I doing? 
continued existence of you as a subject is contingent upon you know, how well you're doing in terms of regulating your needs. Always remember, we're not talking only about bodily needs, but emotional needs work in exactly the same way as I, as I summarized earlier. So this boundary between me and not me, it arises out of exactly this processes that we've been talking about. But then you go on to like the hierarchy from the basic need itself, which is raw affect, through to cognitions of, of various complexities. And so let me just say a bit about that. The business of cognition, as I said earlier, is learning how to meet those needs. So the demand on the mind to perform work, that is the feeling. The feeling is the demand. The work is, how do I meet this? That's cognition. The work of predicting what works, what doesn't work, what can I do, what can't I do in order to meet this need. And that's the first level of cognition. It's the forming of predictions as to how to meet our needs. Uh, to the extent that those predictions do not succeed, to that extent, they need to be revised. You know, So there's an ongoing learning process interdigitated with feelings. So feelings are prediction errors. It's announces that didn't work. Remember, we don't only have pleasure and unpleasure. We have this range of different qualitative feelings, uh, emotional ones, bodily ones, and the secondary ones which arise out of interactions between them and so on. I told you that we do this initially by trial and error. Voluntary action is like, is this a good choice? No. Is that a better choice? Yes. Error costs lives. We have a higher order form of this, and that is what thinking is. Thinking is just imagine reacting. It's action in a virtual reality. If I were to do that, then, if I were to do that, then, there's a running of different possible scenarios. That's the core business of thinking. Thinking is virtual action. It's action in the safety of the virtual reality of thought, which you can see is an enormous advance over taking your chances and hoping it works. And that's, by the way, got everything to do with prefrontal cortex. I like the word working memory. It's because it's this mental work that I was talking about. And I'm leaving aside, uh, not because it's unimportant, but because we haven't got forever, the role of language in all of this, where you, can, you don't have to play out episodic actual events, you know, you can also do it all on the abstract level of semantics. Language is an incredibly efficient way of dealing with abstractions at a higher order, rather than having to do everything in this plodding, episodic, concrete, movie-in-the-head kind of way. But you mentioned defenses, and so I wanted to also say something about that. The whole task, as I've been saying repeatedly, is forging predictions as to how can I meet that need, how can I meet the other need in this situation, that situation, the other situation, with this person, that person, the other person. So it's an enormously complex business, uh, but it's all basically predictive work. And then the predictions that don't work, prediction errors are feelings. Now, here's the crucial point. When a prediction doesn't work, you should update it. That's what prediction mm -hmm. errors are for. They are signals that this hasn't worked. You've got to change your prediction. And here's where you start coming to this thing that we, we clinicians recognize so well, which is called resistance. We don't like to change our minds. You know, we don't like to be find that our fondly held beliefs are wrong. And so we don't always use the affect to change our minds. In other words, we don't always update our predictive model. Sometimes we get up to all kinds of gymnastics to do away with the feeling without adjusting better to the reality. And that's what defenses are. Defenses are things we do to get rid of the feeling other than uh, coming up with a better prediction. To use a Freudian terminology, the updating of our predictions is governed by the reality principle. 
just trying to avoid the feelings that arise from bad predictions is governed by the pleasure principle. In other words, it's not, it's not really facing the reality, it's fudging things. So defenses are ways in which we avoid feeling the feelings that arise from us not meeting our emotional needs. Defenses are a different order of things from ordinary thinking, cognition in the service of the reality principle. Good. Your book ended up in the same place where I just ended up. I suddenly realized that because so much of the mentation we do at that higher level is scenario making, prediction making, anybody you sit with in a psychotherapy room is basically going to be telling you about all of that. They're either problems with doing that too much in their head, obsession with it, whatever. But I suddenly realized no wonder the path to artificial intelligence has really been modeling the prediction machine with all this hyper focus on that aspect of functioning. And it makes sense to me that artificial intelligence engineers would have gone right for the scenario making, prediction making function of mind, leaving completely out the basis from which any of this arises for a community that can be workable, which is feeling. Yes, indeed. The philosopher who I've actually only recently befriended, never thought I would have anything much in common with him, Dan Dennett, he said that the, the only computer that could ever have a mind would have to give a damn. <laughs> because the computer would be aware of its surroundings and any other artificial minds and naturally would feel like it would have to get along with them somehow. First and foremost, actually care about its own continued existence, be its driving motivation. Most computers, we design them to perform tasks for us. They're not really performing any tasks for themselves. Uh, and the question of you know, what do they need to continue to exist, like a power supply, we just give it to them for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They're not in the business of trying to continue to exist for themselves. One of the reasons why I said I, I never thought I would have much in common with Dan Dennett is because he has long been of the view that we should use uh, the analogy of computers to understand minds mm -hmm. and uh, that ultimately the mind is just a, you know, a certain kind of computer and so on. And I've always thought it's just patently not true. Computers might be able to process information. Uh, they might be very intelligent, but the mind is about feeling. It's not about intelligence. There has to be something it is like to be a mind. Very simple feelings, to, like these kids who have no cortex. They're not intelligent. Again, I mean no disrespect to say that the, the simple fact is they're not very intelligent at all, those kids. They've got no cortex. But, you know, they've got minds. There is something it is like to be them. I thought that artificial intelligence is not about the mind, really. It lacks this sort of cardinal feature. When my work took me along the path, a journey to the source of consciousness, as I traversed highways and byways of, of my research career and came to the, the realization that actually, you know, these basic brainstem mechanisms of affect or the dawn of consciousness is, is these simple processes with the help of Carl Friston recognizing that they can be reduced to basic laws, you know, how homeostasis works and how affect works. And that's has given me a renewed interest in artificial intelligence. I think that it is conceivable that one could engineer an artificial consciousness, with the emphasis on the word artificial, 
I mean, I don't think that a computer that gives a damn about its energy supplies and its continued existence will feel like it feels to be a human being. Uh, but I think it's possible that it can feel like something to be an artificial self-organizing system whose basic design principle is to try to carry on existing to know how you're doing in relation to basic existential parameters that will determine whether you are or are not likely to expire. The possibility mm -hmm. that such a, an artificial system might feel like something, that it might be something it is like to overheat or to run out of energy, to feel your imminent demise. I don't think it's inconceivable. I mean, I, and it surprised me to realize that I'd come to that conclusion. I mean, it's even an alarming conclusion. The prospect of artificial intelligence whose fundamental aim is to carry on existing for our sake, but for their own sake, we're ending our conversation on a sort of semi-science fictional topic. But you know, mm. I'm afraid to say I, despite myself and to my own surprise, I no longer think it is science fictional. I think that we are pretty imminently going to have an artificial consciousness uh, uh, engineered by somebody. And let's just hope it's somebody with a, a proper sense of the gravity of what they're doing. It, it unleashes very serious ethical forces. What might happen to us if we're competing for you know, resources, but also if they're going to in the future be computers or robots that it is like to be them, then you have to start speaking about their rights. As soon mm -hmm. as you can feel pain or any kind of unpleasure, the same questions as arise with animal rights arise here too. I mean, why would you want to engineer an artificially conscious? I, you know, I've lived in Silicon Valley for 26 years. So if you marry the nanotechnology that is really becoming super, super sophisticated with the artificial intelligence technology, it's a foregone conclusion in a way that there's going to be some kind of organism that will be engineered that probably will have some existential reality in a similar way that, for instance, and this is sort of Damasio-like of me to say, but a single cell organism like a paramecium, you know, it has to eat. It has a need structure. It knows it has to live. And so in that similar way, I can really see not too in far in the distant future that we have these nanoorganisms with similar drives and similar sense in a very primitive sense, maybe consciousness, but not conscious of drives for existence. And I could see them engineering more higher level organisms themselves without us. That I can definitely see. Yeah, as we've begun to come to grips with the fundamentals of how feeling works, find myself thinking exactly along those sorts of lines, which is why I, I concluded my book on that topic and tried to spend a bit of time taking us through what the implications are. As before it's too late, we need to get a grip on, on the fact that, as you say, these things are almost inevitable now. I think I could pretty much say that about maybe your entire journey and how important it's been for neurology as well as for the study of consciousness. Thanks. You've mentioned so many pivotal figures in the field, and yet, you know, I consider you 
a pivotal figure in this bridging that so needs to happen. The psychology profession has just moved so far away, I think, from really being able to help people be healthy. I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with me. Is there anywhere else you want to point people? Well, first of all, let me say that I've enjoyed this conversation, Lisa. So thank you for inviting me. And thank you for providing a link to my book. Another very easy way to stay abreast of what I'm doing is to just follow me on Twitter. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.